check this out. This is my favorite book from when I grew up. This or this? Now this is fun. So this is Bellingham. Our sweet new girl. This is one thing I want you to know. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the sleep in service. We're so glad that you are here. You know, every once in a while, I come back to something that I have previously preached before because I think it's an incredibly good reminder of not only about the goodness of God, but about the wisdom of God. And over the last number of weeks, I felt like God was saying this one more time. So this may seem a little familiar to some of you who've been around CTK for a little while, and that's good. I think we need reminders from time to time about God's direction and his wisdom. So I'll start by saying this. In 2001, I needed a car. I needed a cheap car, a car that was cheap on gas, because we were trying to keep everything just tightly reined in financially in our family. And so I prayed that God would show me the right car. I went to car lots and scoured the newspaper we used to do that. If you don't know what a newspaper is, ask an old person. All right, they'll share with you what that actually is. And I started looking for a car, and then I saw it. I was walking across a car lot, and the car talked to me. It, it said it was a gift from God. It was a 1986 Geo Metro, and it was cheap in all of the right kinds of ways. It was definitely God's car for me. I paid $1,000 for that car. I drove home, and within 30 days, I knew one truth. That car was not from God. That car was from the devil. It was designed by demons, which explained the sulfur smell that came out of the car every time I turned on the heater. It, it never ran when I needed it to. It was unreliable. Things would just randomly go off. I would be driving down the street, and all of a sudden, the windshield wipers would go whoop, whoop. And then when it was raining and I needed them, I would turn it on, and nothing would happen until the next sunny day. Whoop, whoop. That's just the way that it worked. The radio would turn on by itself, loudly, scaring me half to death. The dash lights would wink false messages at me from time to time. One of the scariest things about the car is the accelerator would stick in fast positions, which is no problem if you're a Canadian. All deference to my good friends in Canada that are watching today. But if you're a slow-driving American like me, it's just not good. To be honest with you, transparent moment. I can't wait for the border to reopen because the truth is my commute is just a little bit faster when there are British Columbia drivers on the road. That's just the truth. But the gas pedal would stick. And having your accelerator sticking in a fast position is not good when you're driving the only car ever created that, would, that could hit a pedestrian and actually lose, all right? The only redeeming thing about that car is that I sold it for the exact amount that I bought it for, even though I probably need to repent before that guy who bought it, because yeah, it's a great car. It's a great car. I thought that car was the answer to my prayers. I thought God gave me that car. He didn't. The whole situation, it looked like a God thing, acted like a God thing, and even talked like a God thing, but it was most certainly not a God thing. And that's the question for today. How do you know when something, anything, is a God thing? Well, in 1 Samuel chapter 24, we actually are taught how to figure out if that decision that you're making, if that discernment moment that you're doing your best to try and get right, whether or not that is a God thing. Let me give you the context. Saul's the king of Israel. He was chosen by God to rule God's people, but there's a problem. Saul, like a lot of us, decides to do his own thing. 
That sound familiar? He's rebellious, he's outrightly disobeying, and he's looking for loopholes in God's commandments. And because of Saul's disobedience, God removes his hand from his life. So Saul's on the way out of the door, and at the same time, a young man by the name of David is on his way through the door of leadership. David has his own issues. You can read about his life all through the book of Psalms. But even though he has issues, he's still described in the Bible as a man after God's own heart. And as some young, aggressive leaders might do, David actually does the opposite in his leadership school. He doesn't try to stage a hostile takeover even as Saul is on his way out of the door. But even though he doesn't try to stage a hostile takeover, Saul gets more insecure and scared and freaked out. And so he starts chasing David all over the Middle East. David is running from cave to cave to cave with Saul hot on his heels. David has this promise, right? It's a promise from God that one day he's going to be king. That's filling his heart. But Saul, his heart is empty because he has an empty dream of former greatness and an incredibly hard heart. And after months of chasing, this happens in 1 Samuel 24. The Bible says this. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 men from all of Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way, and a cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Yes, that means exactly what you think it means, okay? David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. I want you to just stop for a second and think about David's life. David has this promise of royalty, but instead of running towards the throne, David's been running from cave to cave to cave. David has God in the center of his soul, but he's still hiding in the back of a cave being hunted every single day. And now suddenly he has an opportunity. His enemy is right there in front of him and his enemy is vulnerable. I mean, this has to be a God thing, right? It was perfect. Even in his men, even his men are telling him, David, this is your moment. Like, just take it. Look how God has delivered Saul right into your hand. This has to be God. Have you ever been there in that moment when you are just utterly convinced this has got to be God? I see this happen in people's relational worlds all the time. I, I talk to people, and when the topic of the opposite gender comes up, sometimes words like this come out of their mouth. You know, I'm just really lonely, and I, I hope someday that God will bring me someone. So they're praying and hoping, hoping and praying, and then someone with a pulse walks by and gives them a second look, and it's like heaven opens and the angels sing, and all of a sudden this stranger has got to be a gift from God, and all they know is this, God loves me, and he must have a plan for our life together. They start dating, and then one day the other person's humanity shows up. They have coffee breath. They pick their teeth. They listen to country music. They like the New York Yankees. And suddenly, this person that they thought was a gift from God is not a God thing anymore. And back on the relational roller coaster they go, thinking to themselves, it looked so godly. It seemed so perfect. It was just so good. And then it wasn't. So here's David in the cave. His enemy is right in front of him and completely vulnerable. 
And I'm sure there was a part of David that was saying, this opportunity looked like a God thing, acted like a God thing, talked like a God thing. This has got to be a God thing. I mean, God had delivered David's enemy right into the palm of his hand, or so it looked. There are so many truths in this story we need to learn today. Here's just a couple of them. The first one is this. Exercising restraint is actually a godly virtue. You can imagine David was tired of waiting to be king. He wasn't even waiting blindly. I mean, God had told him, you will be king, but he had to wait. It's hard to wait, isn't it? Waiting is difficult for all of us. We live in an age when everything is instant, right? Instant coffee, instant messenger, instant gratification, instant answers. I mean, all you do is Google, there's your answer. We often forget that waiting is often God's tool for teaching us how to discern both his truth and his direction. I mean, I can say this from experience. Snap decisions, they rarely ever end up well for me. I mean, I bought a 1986 Geo Metro, if you need proof, right? There are moments when we just need to to push the pause button, to take that sacred pause, to, to take just a moment before we do something or say something or act on something, and we have to just breathe for just a moment. Why? Because waiting time is never wasting time in God's kingdom. I mean, just think about Jesus as an example. His whole life led up to a destiny moment to become King, Savior, and Lord of every one of our lives if we invite him into our life in that role. But think about how he lived his life. I mean, he waited for days before he brought Lazarus back to life. He waited 33 years of his own life before he reached the apex of his purpose and his mission. And just think about it. He waited three days to come back to life. And what does the Bible say to us? using that example, but they that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. And if you grew up in church or in Sunday school, you know how this, the course of the song that we learned to learn the verse goes, teach me, Lord, teach me, Lord, to wait. Another lesson is that circumstances are actually a terrible way of defining a life direction. You know why that is? It's, it's because when you are looking at your circumstances to define your life direction, you're actually depending on human wisdom to determine the direction. And I don't know about you, but I can make my circumstances say anything that I want them to say. Every day when I drive back and forth to work, I pass restaurant signs. It seems like they're everywhere. And every one of those restaurant signs beckons me to come in and to eat. Just so you know, there are 17 restaurant signs between here and my home, which means 34 times a day when I'm making that round trip, there's a sign screaming at me that says, Grant, eat now. Imagine if I use that as my grid. Now, the reality is sometimes I do, but imagine if I use that reality as my grid to determine my life's direction. Circumstances are a terrible way to define answers to life tough questions. So if you can't go that route, then what do you do? Well, let's learn from David. Put yourself in his sandals for just a second. David has an opportunity. He's been promised he will be king. 
The man in between him and the throne is right in front of him, and he has positioned himself as David's enemy. This has got to be God's moment. But David stops, and he weighs this opportunity against four standards. The law of God, the principles of God, the wisdom of God, and the will of God. So that's them. And yes, they are in priority order. You're supposed to start at the top and work your way towards the bottom. Here's the problem. Most of us as Christians start at number four and get stuck there. And then we wonder why in the world we're so confused because we spend our whole life trying to figure out what is this, this mystical, mysterious will of God? That's a very popular question. I hear it all the time. Grant, what's God's will for my life? Well, can we agree on something? The will of God can sometimes be really difficult to figure out. It's a little fuzzy at times. So if that's the most difficult of the four, law, principles, wisdom, and will, if that's the most difficult of the four, then why is it that we start at the bottom and get stuck there when we're trying to determine something as huge as the direction for the rest of our lives? True story from years ago. Friend calls up and says, hey, let's get together. So we go to a coffee shop, sit down together. And he lays this heavy thought right in the middle. He goes, I'm trying to determine if I should ask Julie to marry me. I changed her name, okay? Trying to determine, should I ask her to marry me? He's just like, how can I know for sure that she's the one? I'm like, you can't. He's like, really? I'm like, yeah, there's no guarantees. And here's where it gets really scary. You're both sinners and you're both human. You should probably pray, okay? All right? And, and, and so here's what we did. We actually worked through the list, but unfortunately, I didn't lead him the right direction. I actually started at the bottom and tried to work my way to the top. So I started in the wrong order. I said, so do you think it's God's will that you should get married? He's like, absolutely. I'm like, why? He goes, well, you should hear the story of how God brought her into my life. I'm like, okay, well, that, that appears to be the, the will of God. I said, let's talk about the wisdom of God. And I shared with him. I said, so the wisdom of God says it's not good for a man to be alone. And that's true, because I've seen how single men live, okay? It's not a pretty picture, right? They smell bad, they're selfish, they eat the five major food groups, pizza, soda, anything, deep fried meat, and Cheetos, right? And then God comes along in his wisdom and says, it is not good for you to be left to your own devices. And that is true wisdom. I've lived that wisdom for 31 years, and Laurel has survived that wisdom for 31 years. God bless her soul and her continued patience, okay? And then we move to the principles of God. Well, there's a biblical principle that says that a man should get married if, if he's willing to love his wife like Christ loved the church. So I asked him the question. I said, Jesus died for the church. Are you willing to do that? Yes, absolutely. I'm like, okay, so far so good. Let's get to the law of God. The law of God in scripture says Christians are not to marry those who don't believe in Jesus. Not because God is some kind of an elitist, but because he wants every human being to enter into a relationship with him based on a direct relationship between that person and God, not because they're trying to please somebody else. I said, you know, the goal of marriage is to be able to share the deepest part of your soul. If you don't share the same faith, you can't share the deepest part of your soul. So I asked a question, is she a follower of Jesus? He said, no, she's not. I said, then you have your answer, no. You should not ask her to marry you. And then came the qualifiers. Happens every time. He's like, yeah, but if you knew how God brought us together, I'm like, it doesn't really matter. 
to marry her would violate God's law. God's trying to protect both of you. He's like, yeah, but I really love her and I think God put her there for me to witness to and given enough time, I really think this could work out. I'm like, it doesn't really matter what you think. God said, no, I will never forget what he said to me next. He's like, but she's really hot. I'm like, I don't care. The answer is no. And now you have to choose. What do you love more? A law that God put in place to protect both you and Julie or you're going to love how you feel more. You know, here's the truth and the point. If you start at the top of the list and work your way down, you save yourself so much pain and so much time. I wish I would have modeled for him how to start at the beginning and just said, look, here's God's law out of protection for both of you. Do not be unequally yoked. Start there. I was having a discussion a long time ago about underage drinking. I ran into a set of parents. They asked my opinion about this. And their reasoning kind of went like this. Well, every kid's going to do it anyway. So as long as we're kind of hanging around and supervising, it's fine. Right, Grant? <laughs> I'm like, let's start at the top. God has a law about obeying the laws of the land as long as they don't conflict with, conflict with his laws. And the law of the land in this state is very clear. No underage drinking. They're like, well, we feel different. It doesn't matter how you feel about it. It's very clear. You can even say, I don't like that. Let's pause for a second. What about what God likes? So we've got David in this situation. He has an opportunity to take Saul's life. And, I mean, all he's going to do is kind of speed up God's timeline. Like God promised him he was going to become king anyway, so let's just hurry it along, right? And now he has this opportunity Looked like a God thing, acted like a God thing, talked like a God thing. But David knew in his heart and his soul, this could not be a God thing. And let me give you the four reasons why. Reason number one, thou shalt not commit murder, God's law. Reason number two, no one removes a king except for God. Daniel chapter 2. It is God who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. God's principles. Reason number three is the reason of waiting. David knew God promised the kingdom was going to come to me. I don't need to go and take the throne. I'm going to wait on God's time and God's appointment because in 2 Samuel 16, this is what God said. Rise and anoint him being David. This is the one. That's just God's wisdom. And finally, reason number four was the one that boiled in the bottom of his heart. David knew, I'm a man after God's own heart. Therefore, when his will is clear to me, I will know it. God's will. Law, principles, wisdom, will. Top to bottom, it works. Here's what happens next in verse number five. It says, afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. Let's stop there for a second. When was the last time you were conscience-stricken over something you said or did? You just knew it was wrong and then something stirred inside of your heart. If your answer is never, I'm never conscience-stricken, it means you have a seared conscience and a hard heart. 
I'm so thankful that David's heart was so tender that in this moment, something just kind of gripped him. Look at what it says next, verse number six. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he's the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, my Lord, the king. Isn't it interesting? He doesn't say, my sworn enemy. He says, my Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed down, prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you've seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lift my hand against my master because he's the Lord's anointed. See my father? Look at this piece of robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe but did not kill you. Now understand and recognize I'm not guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I've not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me. May the Lord avenge the wrongs you've done to me. But my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds. So my hand will not touch you. The second part of David's response was this. What looks like a God thing feels like a God thing and is suggested by others to be a God thing is not necessarily a God thing. Think back through it again. Did God deliver Saul into David's hands? Yes, but not for the obvious reason. The reason was to actually allow David to have a moment where he could lead his men towards holiness, not murder. The reason was so that David could model for his men, you need to learn how to wait until God's perfect time. It was a moment when he could model for his men, we need to learn to trust God fully. God gave me a promise, I'm going to wait until he brings the throne to me, not the other way around. He needed to have a moment when he could model for his men, you never go wrong when you choose the road of integrity. Now David also needed to learn some humility because he knew something. Cutting off a piece of someone's robe, that actually was a sign of rebellion. And that was the very sin that had taken Saul's kingdom from him. David could have walked down exactly the same road, but because he knew the law of God, the wisdom of God, the principles of God, and the will of God, he chose a different path. You know, I want to stop here for just a moment. There's such a beautiful little piece in here. I think it's worth mentioning. Long before Saul and David ever showed up in the cave of the wild goats, God was already there. God already knew every detail of that encounter and how it was going to play out. God already knew about David's choice and Saul's vulnerability. Because God already knew they were going to be in the cave that day. The truth is, some of you feel lost in the dark. You're overwhelmed right now because the world seems to be spinning out of control. Some of you are scared. And the question that keeps rolling around in your mind is, where in the world is God in the midst of all of this? What I need you to know is God already knows about your question 
And his answer is, trust me. When I woke up this morning, I didn't know that today would be a day of heartbreak for Laurel and I. Earlier this morning, CTK had to hand back one of the beautiful prayer warriors that God has blessed our church with. Terry Brown, for years, has been sitting in the second row at the 9.30 service. Terry was a godly, gracious, passionate man for Jesus. Whenever I'd hug him, he'd give me a kiss on the cheek, and it was never weird. It was always beautiful. If I ever said something that Terry loved or God prompted him, the words out of his mouth were always, say it again. Say it again. I took that as permission to re-preach this message this morning. We didn't know that today Terry's last breath here would be his first breath home. And when I was driving in this morning, struggling with my own emotions, I kept hearing God say, I already know. I already know, but Terry's safe. He's home and you can trust me. I know many of us are struggling with conflicting emotions today. The most amazing thing about God is that he already knows. And I don't wanna preach this point. I actually want somebody else to help me out. So. Instead of inviting the band, we do that a lot, right? We invite the worship team to, to come out here and join us. And instead of doing that today, we're, we're going to go, go join them. Because I've got some friends in the back, uh, Andy and Teresa, who are waiting for us with an answer to this particular point in our story. So I'm going to try not to trip over top of my feet back here, but I'd like to welcome you back into an area that we call the green room. This is where our worship team prepares and gets their hearts ready, they pray, and they just make sure that they're ready to come and minister to us as a church. And today, I'm gonna give them an opportunity to share with you what it means when God smiles on you, when it hurts, and because he's outside of time and space, can say, I already know. So Andy and Teresa, are gonna bless us now. I wanna invite you to step into this moment of worship and just think that no matter what it is you're facing today, God already knows and he's there. Guys, would you bless us?
God already knows. So rest well, Terry. Laurel and I love you so much. And Lori, you are not alone. And this spiritual family is going to walk with you every step of the way. David was scared. Being king is kind of scary. But David trusted God's direction because he knew that God already had the best path forward for his future kingdom. God already knew the fears, the failures, the future. And David was holding on to the promise that God was going to be with him every step of the way. So one more piece of wisdom to come out of this particular story. It's only a God thing if it lines up. And I mean a God thing. Whatever it is you're trying to discern, whatever path forward you're trying to consider right now, it's only a God thing if it lines up with all four standards in the order of priority that God has placed them. So let's practice with this. Should you ever have an affair? No. Why? God's law. 
thou shalt not commit adultery. Should you take that job or that promotion? Let's start at the top. Does the job you're going to be doing violate God's commands in any way? Does the job violate any of God's principles of honesty, integrity, or character? Does the job violate any of God's wisdom? How much time are you going to be spending away from your family? Will it allow you to actually provide for them? Does it fulfill God's wisdom about using the gifts that God has given you to bless people? And lastly, is it God's will? And before you say, absolutely, when did you stop and ask him? How much listening have you done? Do you sense in the bottom of your soul that you have God's confirmation? God's confirmation is always accompanied with peace. You know, none of this works if you don't know God's will, God's principles, God's wisdom, or, or uh, God's law. And the only way you can actually know them is by opening the word of God and searching for them. So my prayer this week is that the people of Christ the King will search for God's law, God's principles, God's wisdom, and God's will. And that we'll search them and find them in this beautiful love letter that we call the Bible. Let's try one more, very practical and very personal. I get pushed all of the time. I experience pressure to comment on social issues, and the truth is we do comment on social issues here. And the reason we do it here through the mode most often of prayer is because I believe that that is the most honorable way to deal with difficult things. We have a conversation with God, and then we have a conversation with each other. Where I don't comment is on social media because I actually believe that lacks wisdom. So let's say we all have something to say this week, and I'm sure we do. I'm sure we've got something that we'd like to post, and we're all pointing, saying this, like the world needs to hear this. Before we start typing, let's start at the top. God's law says, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for the building up of others according to their needs so that it may benefit those who listen. So if it doesn't build up, if it doesn't benefit someone else, then we should pause. God's principle. If someone offends you, you are to go to them face to face and talk. That's Matthew 18. I have never, maybe it's just me, I have never been able to pull off a face to face confrontation through a keyboard and a screen. And don't start quibbling with me about Zoom, okay? It's not the same thing. That's God's principle. We're supposed to share these conversations face to face, heart to heart, human to human. What about God's wisdom? A soft answer turns away anger. That's what the Bible says. How about James chapter 3? But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest 
of righteousness. God's wisdom also says we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. So the question is this. Is the post I'm about to type through my fingers, is that going to light anyone's path home to eternity? If not, I should pause. And finally, God's will. And I know I said earlier that this one's a little bit fuzzy. Actually, the prophet Micah in the Old Testament makes it very clear. It says, he has shown you, O Grant, O Derek, O Braden, O Scott, O Florence. He has shown you what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. And I believe the best way It is my conviction that the best way to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God is to make every decision based on the law of God, the principles of God, the wisdom of God, and the will of God. My prayer this week is simple. God, would you give us the wisdom and the courage and the strength to start at the top and work our way down? That we would fracture bad thinking by thinking that it all starts about, what's God's will for my life? What if we started with God first? What if we knew the law of God? What if we understood the principles of God? What if we applied the wisdom of God? I believe if we did that, the will of God would become abundantly clear to all of us. So let's pray and ask God for that today. In the midst of our grief, in the midst of our joy, in the midst of our hope, in the midst of our disappointment, that we would ask God to help us have a moment just like David did and choose the right and good path in following Jesus. Let's pray together. God, would you give wisdom to your children this week to make every decision based on the law of God, the principles of God, the wisdom of God, and the will of God. God, help us to start with you, knowing that everything you've given to us is for our our protection, for our growth, for our encouragement, for our challenge. God, I thank you for Jesus in that because I believe he's the one who then leads us into the beautiful principles that you have. And God, may we do more than just know them. May May we be more than just hearers of the word, but may we become doers of the word. God, I pray that your wisdom would soak us so that God, when pressure comes, what comes out of us is wisdom that comes from you And ultimately, God, this week, would you allow us, as we immerse ourselves in the law, the principles, and the wisdom of God, that we would find our way to the will of God, knowing that your path is clear, challenging, and beautiful. So, God, into this moment, we thank you that you already know about our Monday, our Tuesday, our Wednesday. 
You already know what's going to happen to us. May we choose your law, your principles, your wisdom, and your will in response to everything that comes against us this week. God, we anticipate an opportunity to live this out. May we find ourselves faithful as David found himself faithful. And we pray these things in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. And all God's people said, amen. Thanks again for watching. We're so glad that you joined us today. Once again, we hope you'll get involved in biblical face-to-face community wherever you happen to be today. If you'd like more information about Christ the King Community Church, if you'd like to give online, or if you'd like to submit a prayer request, or even get connected in a small group, you can find out more about us at ctk.church.